Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be speaking with Tamara Human, who spoke to her from her home in Kyiv, Ukraine, about the work that she and the organization she founded, Every Animal, are doing to support people and animals while the war continues to rage. Wow, Marianne, that's such an intense, an intense interview. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, no, it was great. I, they're really amazing and and really like just straightforward about how freakish it all was and how suddenly they were thrust into this like unbelievable situation and everybody like kind of didn't know what to do. I mean, they've been doing this animal rights work and mostly vegan advocacy for a while now and they, they really had to like rethink what they were doing and it's a really moving interview and we actually recorded it very recently and usually it takes us a while to get an interview up but we thought we should get it up right away given that the situation is just unfolding at a rapid pace. You may have sensed that there's some background noise here. We apologize but we happen to be on the train at the moment. Train is, of course, one of both of our favorite places. We're just to give you a visual. We're in a little room. We got a roomette, and we are sipping our Chardonnay. We have both of our laptops open. Maybe I should take a photo of this and and in order to memorialize it for you to see. Uh, so, of course, that is lovely that we are on the train. But but it is for a very very sad reason that we wanted to tell you about. If you listen to our hen house regularly, you are familiar with Sherry Kolb and Michael Dorff, her husband. If you are in the animal protection movement, you also know Sherry and Michael. If you are in animal law, you know Sherry and Michael. Uh, Sherry, there's no easy way to say this. Sherry, who was on our podcast recently, several times, actually, she's been on a lot. She passed away. And we are on the train because we are coming back from her funeral. She, which was in New York city, Sherry had cancer and it got extremely intense at the end, of course. And Marianne and I, we were able to get to know Sherry even better in the last like six months to a year because we moved to Rochester and she lived in Ithaca because she and Michael both were professors at Cornell. She taught animal rights. And for those of you who listen to the Animal Law Podcast, I actually had Sherry on to talk about her course. Well, not too long ago, just months ago. And it was a very unique course. Well, I'm not supposed to say very unique. It was a unique course in that she didn't really teach it from an animal law perspective. She taught it from an animal rights perspective and very much in emphasizing the importance of veganism and the philosophy behind it. So she took a different tack than a lot of people teaching animal issues in law schools do. It was a law school course, but it came from a very, a very philosophical rights position. So I, I highly recommend that you check out that interview if you haven't listened to it. Yes. I, I, I just want to pause and say that this was, this is, oh, this is a tremendous loss. This is a big loss for us personally. She was our friend. This is a giant loss for the animals and for animal rights. If you read Michael's blog, it's Dorf on Law. Michael is an incredible, incredible legal scholar and so much more. And he wrote about about Sherry. He's the one who announced that she had died. And 
we pulled this little part of it that I'll, I'll read for you right now. He says, Sherry was the love of my life and the mother of my two magnificent daughters, Mina and Amelia Kolbdorf. Isn't it cute that they combined their names, by the way? I love that. But she was also an academic superstar. She was valedictorian of her high school class and then valedictorian of her class at Columbia College. She excelled at Harvard Law School, earning a clerkship with the Second Circuit Judge Wilfred Feinberg and then Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. She won teaching awards and was chosen by the students to speak at graduation ceremonies at Rutgers and at Cornell. She was a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia Law Schools. She wrote three books and countless articles, columns, and blog posts. She was frequently quoted in the New York Times and other media. As regular readers of this blog and Sherry's verdict columns surely know, in her last months, she channeled her white-hot anger at Justice Samuel Alito and the reactionary Supreme Court into numerous essays that far-flung readers wrote to tell her gave fiercely intelligent voice to their own feelings. And I will add that she was the author of Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans, which we covered on our henhouse back when it came out, and of Beating Hearts, Abortion, and Animal Rights, which she wrote with Michael. Yeah, and I would highly recommend both these books. And in particular, for activists, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger just just lays out all of the arguments in like, like her ability to lay out very detailed arguments in just a way that anybody can understand was it was really unparalleled and and you know one of the reasons we wanted to read this description of her remarkable accomplishments was that even if you heard her speak you would never i mean you knew that she was really good and you knew that she was really smart but she just wasn't pretentious and she didn't show off like how she just really tried to communicate well and she always did and in but in just she would be able to articulate arguments in such just fine detail. And she was so, so fucking smart. Yes. And the funeral was just packed. There's going to also be a memorial celebrating her life, honoring her life at Cornell in the coming months. And stay tuned because we're currently putting together some ideas for how we can also celebrate her through our hen house. She was a big part of our hen house. She was, she's been a longtime listener and flock member. And I probably has been on our hen house more than anyone else. Uh, so we are sad. This is, this is sad. Okay. So when we were at her funeral, the day of her funeral, I was thinking of my, my, my grandmother, whose name was also Sherry. She was a uh, giant, enormous, big part of my life. If you've listened to our hen house a long time, you, you heard my grandma on our hen house. She was on a lot in the early days. And I thought of this, this tattoo, <laughs> as I do, to get of two Sherry glasses clinking with Lachaim to life across it and a rose as, as I love roses and my grandmother was named Sherry Rose. And so I, I got it. I found a tattoo place and, and 
and I got it. And yeah, so I went in that afternoon, I got it and I have this tattoo now. So that I love having that. It makes me think of her. And honestly, the only way I can deal with this tragic enormous loss is to think like I thought with my grandmother that that when people die and when animals die, we can take what they gave us, what they stood for, what they valued, their character traits, their beliefs, and we can continue to embody them to the best of our ability. In the case of Sherry Kolb, it will fall short because she was extraordinary, but I will try and I will do that. Yeah, I, at, actually, at her funeral, her one of her daughters, Amelia, was talking about her beautifully articulate talk that she, she gave. And she said, which was obviously true, I know that many of you in this audience are, are truly brilliant. And then she said, of course, you're, you're not as brilliant as my mother was. <laughs> which is really, it really is true. She just had a shining intelligence, and, and I really loved her. Okay, well, I'm sorry this was so sad, but I think we can also find the celebration and the appreciation and, and, and just do the best we can as a collective to like fill the giant hole that was left in the animal protection world when Sherry died and just do our best. Okay, so I want to get to today's guest because this is an extraordinary interview. It's truly amazing. I am so excited to share this with people. Tamara Human has a great name. <laughs> I love this name. Tamara Human is the founder of the Ukrainian vegan organization Every Animal, whose mission is to create a world where animals are free from exploitation and are not seen as property, commodity, or resources. We can get behind that, Tamara. And she will be joining Marianne right after this. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at Miyoko's.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk cheese and butter, we honor traditional dairy making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With love, Miyoko. 15% off your next order at Miyoko's.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. Welcome to our HENHOUSE, Tamara. Hi, nice to see you today. It is such a pleasure to talk to you. I really feel privileged to be able to talk to you and hear more of what's going on in Ukraine, something that the whole world is worried about. 
And of course, we want to talk about the war and what's going on right now. But you've been doing vegan advocacy for a long time. So I, I just want to reassure everybody that we're going to get into both what's happening now, but also what happened before and your plans for the future. But let's start with right now, because it's such an emergency situation. And a lot of your work right now is, is involved around providing vegan food. Let's start with soldiers. There are vegan soldiers and they do not want to give up their ethics just because they're fighting. How do you find them and how do you help them? So when the full-scale war started, uh, we didn't uh, uh, know exactly how to be effective for humans and animals. And we just started helping everywhere we could, uh, like helping animal refugees and uh, people and all things we could. And then we find out that there was a, a vegan kitchen in Lviv. And uh, we thought that we can do the same thing, but in different uh, cities in Ukraine, all cities in Ukraine. And we started, like just in a few days, we started the project Vegan Kitchen Ukraine, uh, where we were providing uh, vegan food for refugees, for elderly people, for soldiers as well. And that's how we understood that the soldiers, the vegan soldiers, are those who need uh, vegan food right now because they're vegans and now they serve in the armed forces of Ukraine and they don't want to give up their ethics, uh, as you said. And the regular the traditional army meals, they're not vegan. You may find the vegan products there, but it's not going to be the full uh, meal. We started helping at first our friends, those who we knew already, who are vegans or vegetarians and who are now in the army. And then we started to do the posts on social media, sharing that uh, we doing we are doing this and we can help if you if you are vegan and you need the vegan food in the army. Please let us know; we will help. And that's how we start receiving orders and uh, requests. We just started receiving more and more and more. And as for now, uh, we sent uh, more than 500 parcels. And each parcel uh, can last for two, three weeks or even month. So we pack a lot of food there. That is amazing. And I want to go back because you're talking about how these vegan kitchens are also feeding other people. It didn't start necessarily with soldiers. They're in a whole bunch of cities now, right? You have you have them all over the place. Where are you personally located and where else do you have these vegan kitchens? I'm personally, uh, I'm in Kiev right now. And we also have a kitchen in Uzhorov, uh, Vinitsa, Odessa, Dnipro, Rivne, Lutsk, Zaporizhia. And two more cities are now, also Ivano-Frankivsk. And now we are setting up the kitchens in two more cities. Uh, and um, in every city, like we have about 10 volunteers who help us to cook, deliver and transportation and buying food. And uh, every day uh, we, as a, as a whole project, uh, uh, give about two, three hundred of uh, free vegan uh, food. Only a few cities work every day. Some cities work just on weekends, uh, some on uh, just uh, work days. So it's different, but usually per day we serve two, three hundred of free meals. And are people doing this out of their own kitchens or do you have some commercial kitchens that you can use? 
And each city is a, a different story. In some cities, we have uh, just volunteers' kitchens where people just cook at their homes. And in some cities, we cooperate with cafes and restaurants, so they, uh, they help us to cook. And in some cities, it's volunteer centers where they have kind of commercial kitchen where they can cook big amount of food and we just cooperate with them and provide food and sometimes volunteers and work together uh, to make this um, happen. It's an amazingly huge project that you've brought together in a short amount of time. I'm assuming that there are vegan refugees and vegan people in these cities who you are trying to reach just like vegan soldiers, but it's probably lots of other people who just who are just hungry, right? Yeah, true. In many cities, especially on the west of Ukraine, there are many refugees and people who moved from their places because their homes was uh, were bombed or they just had to leave because uh, the city is under attack. So uh, many people uh, left without almost anything. They left uh, all their stuff at home. They might lost their jobs. They might don't have money to rent apartment with the kitchen to cook. So there are many, many things that make people in such situation where they need help with the, with the food. As I said, it can be just financial problems or just location. They just don't have the kitchen. And many other things. So people just need help. So, of course, when we offer vegan meals, they are taken not just by vegans. There are many non-vegans who are eating our plant-based food. They're enjoying it and they're really thankful and grateful for the support, any support. And this is also another way uh, that I like, another thing I like about this project, that uh, we're not only helping people who need it, uh, we also uh, kind of spread a vegan message inside this project. Many people who never thought about veganism or vegan cuisine or anything like this. They can try the vegan food, they can enjoy it, and got the idea that uh, veganism is tasty, uh, can be you know full meal, and uh, they kind of discover the veganism. It's a hard way to advance vegan activism, but you're totally right. I mean, the best way to reach people is is with food, and you don't even really have to talk about it too much. They just know it's vegan and they, they suddenly know it's, it, it can be totally delicious. And I've seen pictures of your food on your website and it really looks terrific. I mean, you must have some great cooks. Do you have standard recipes that you suggest to people that are easy to make and that, that easy to make and also easy, like things that people are very familiar with so they'll be very comfortable eating? People who are under enormous amounts of stress probably just want very familiar foods. We kind of collect the recipes together and volunteers can use um, the recipes we collect or create something by themselves. We just make sure that this is 100% vegan and not uh, any animal products uh, used to there. We are not strict in the recipes, uh, so volunteers can make something they want. And especially it's important because Every city has different availability of products in the uh, supermarkets. It's different. For example, in Kiev, you can find more different food. And in some, in some places, there are limited uh, variety of food. So you have to be 
flexible in what you can cook. Do you have trouble getting food? How do you get the food? And are there places where there are shortages that that are really prohibiting you from from doing as much food advocacy as you would like? So at first, when the uh, when the full scale war started, it was let's say struggle <laughs> sometimes because uh, people uh, were stressed out, of course, and uh, everybody just took everything from the shelves. We had to cook from things that were left. Sometimes we found that many vegan food were left, like vegan yogurt or plant-based milk, because this is not first thing people non-vegan buy. So, uh, yeah, so we tried to, to cook from uh, what uh, we found. Of course, uh, the good thing about um, Ukrainian business uh, that many producers stay, like they keep working every day, and also we have the mail uh, service that is also working very well and very fast. You can uh, receive the food the next day. And it is really convenient and helpful that I can order something today and receive it tomorrow. This is also help us to deliver the parcels. So if the soldier have rest, like he or she leaves tomorrow and it has to be like the next day, so we can pack it and send it and he or she will receive it uh, tomorrow. Even if it's somewhere on east or south, maybe not there when uh, the, the front line, but really close to the front line. Because uh, this mail, Nova Posta, uh, works, it helping not only us, it helps a lot of volunteers and people because you can deliver everything and because in other way it just seems impossible to send something to the east or to the south where it's kind of um, not safe at all yeah i i know in addition to food you're encouraging people to get involved in animal rescue and i, I don't think you do that work yourselves but um, we've seen so many news stories about people rescuing animals in ukraine and uh getting animals across the border can you tell us a little bit about the status of that work? Are there really big problems for the shelters? Yeah, uh, many shelters uh, try to um, to leave Ukraine and uh, just to rescue and send their animals from Ukraine to some uh, European uh, shelters. We as an organization, we help as an informational platform. Some of our volunteers uh, does this. Uh, so they go to take these animals and help on the on the border, and then help to to find a home for for the animals. And we usually work as a kind of platform, so we help to find those who need transportation or animals who need to find a home or a foster. So we kind of post and do a lot of stories and try to connect people who and animals who need help and those who can provide this help. And just today, not yesterday, I received a request from a volunteer that they will be on the border on September 3rd, in a few days, and they need many volunteers to help to uh, help animals to cross the border uh, because uh, when you cross the border, you're not allowed to take many animals. You're allowed to take two or three and if it's a shelter, there are like 50, 100 animals. So there have to be many people who can 
can do it at this. So we help with the information and try to help to find volunteers who can go there and help. I, I saw an old article which talked about the animals at your headquarters. It was from before the war. And they mentioned a dog and a rat. I'm just wondering, are they still with you? Yes, they are. They are with me. And uh, when we went, because uh, the second day when the, when the full-scale war started, we left Kiev and we went to Lviv all together. Rat, dog, my husband, so packed on our stuff. <laughs> and, yeah. and the rat is uh, rescued from the lab. The lab where the medicines uh, and maybe even cosmetics were tested on rats and rabbits and um, guinea pigs. Oh, guinea pigs, guinea pigs, yes. We have rescued from that lab, I think, about 10 animals, uh, rats and guinea pigs and uh, rabbits. I'm glad to hear they're still there. I'm, I'm curious to know what kind of react. I mean, I know you're not doing, probably not doing, from what you what you told me, really hardcore activism right now. You know, just providing the food and being open to talking about it is a form of activism. What kind of reactions do you get to the idea of veganism during very desperate times? Are people more open to it? Or are people like, why do you care about animals? Or what are the reactions? So uh, we have now not only the Vegan Kitchen Project, we also have our Vegan Express course, where we have like the program for seven days. People can uh, learn about being vegan and what veganism is and how these industries of animal exploitation work. So this course is dedicated to make people vegan, basically. Again, uh, after the 24th of uh, February, we stopped uh, the course and we thought, not now. And on May 1st, we resumed the course and uh, since uh, that time we got about 800 registration for the course almost without not advertisement uh, we just maybe put a small budget on it and i can say that people is receiving really well it's hard to say better than before but we definitely feel that people became more sensitive about um, doing something bad to uh, vulnerable anyone, human or animals. It's uh, like some uh, injustice uh, becomes so just Ukrainians cannot stand injustice right now. And I think that veganism came more kind of people are, are more receptive now. Maybe it's subjective for vision of me so it's not that 100% but something I think of that maybe now people are more receptive to this uh, because they feel when you are in the vulnerable position and what is the injustice and how it's bad when someone just exploits you or do something or kill you or do something bad so we do uh, the course and it goes well and also we started doing lectures again. Uh, before the war, we were doing lectorium where we did lecture about veganism and also about impact of animal agriculture on the environment. In August, we resumed this project as well. 
I went uh, and my colleague, we went to uh, the children camp where we were talking about veganism, had a lot of discussions with kids, showed them uh, the Game Changers movie, had a discussion about that. In September, we will have the auditorium again in Kiev, where we will have a lecture about veganism again, and I hope uh, a podium discussion with the um, athletes on a plant-based diet, and we will talk about veganism again and uh, have uh, a food sampling so we can uh, show veganism for the people. That's wonderful that you were doing those programs. I hadn't, I hadn't realized that you're starting up again. The course, Vegan Express course, that's totally online. How do you connect with people? Are they able to interact with you? Yes. Uh, so the course is in two ways. You can go with the YouTube version and watch uh, seven videos on YouTube, uh, or you can uh, go to the text version and read the program. And it is seven days, so you receive every day a new topic. And all participants are invited to join the chat where we have the guides for vegans for many years. It's our organization members, and they guide participants on the, on the course. So if participants have any question regarding veganism, regarding recipes, regarding talking to parents or friends about this, like kind of any question related to the veganism, they help in this chat. And also in this chat, there are previous uh, participants from the previous course. And this is also good because they all interact with each other and they can share the experience because those who passed the course like a month ago, they can share how it went next and what they learned. And this chat is all, always live from many, many talks, discussions, sharing so thoughts and uh, emotions so people can receive help. It sounds like a great model, really. And it sounds like you've had great success with it, even in these, these hard times. How do you reach people with the fact that this exists? I, like, is it mostly through social media? So social media, and now we are working with the, the blog. On, on the website. So we kind of answer the questions people make Google. So if person Googles, for example, like what is veganism or what is the difference between veganism and vegetarianism or what do vegans need to take B12 or any other questions. So we write articles about this. So it's basically working with SEO so the, the website of the course is just going upper on the Google search. So when people search something about veganism, they can find our course. That's great. I think that you talk about the health implications, which, you know, is always a good in with people. But I'm curious to know about your messaging on, on animal cruelty. How much do you focus on it? How much do you tell people? Do you try to soft pedal it so not to, you know, freak people out? Because people are are so naive about what's happening to animals, sometimes they can get too upset. How do you approach messaging about the horrible animal cruelty in animal agriculture? So all our messages in the course and everywhere else, so we focus first on ethics. So we, because the ethics is the only way we think person can go vegan because if the person goes from the environment perspective or health perspective, it uh, just goes as far as plant-based diet. 
And if we are talking about veganism, which includes refusing all animal plantation products uh, in clothing and in testing and everywhere else. So we have to talk about all industries, not only about the food industry. So we try to, to cover all topics uh, as much as possible and do it in a way that first, if there is something sensitive, we put the trigger warning before person go further. We are not trying to cover the truth. So of course, we are not going to to shock person like just from first seconds, but we are not going to hide what's happening. So this is what is happening in the farms or other industries. So we just talk about this and say numbers and say, say facts. We don't put a lot of you know words on it. We just just say facts. Like this is happening. This is uh, what is true. This is the evidences. What what we know now. What we can do with this and uh, the choice on our hands. We can we can change something. So we. When we talk about animal exploitation, we try always to show them the way to to stop this and what this person that reads this or watch this can do. So the person not just go sad and uh, doesn't know what to do, but we have the how to say like the instruction kind of what 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 you can do right now step by step and what you can read more, what you can learn more. We created the vegan guide to Ukraine. So the person who discovered what's going on in the, those industries, and of course, it can be hard just to, to go vegan right away. So we try to provide all information that can be needed right now. And the vegan guide is one of these pieces of information. So this is a guide with a lot of lists, with the brands, with the shops, with the clothing, with the makeup, or with books, with movies, like everything person can be interested in or can struggle with, like, or where to buy that, or what should I wear, or where to buy makeup, any other questions. So we try to put it together so it can be easier to go vegan and not harder. That's hugely important. You can't just tell people why, you have to tell them how. I mean, especially in hard times where people are stressed out anyway, it's hard to just cope, much less changing the way you eat. And, you know, I feel like Eastern Europe in general has really seen a huge growth in animal activism over the past 10 years or so. Do you agree? And, and do you see this happening in Ukraine, a real, a real tidal shift in the attention being paid to animals, especially farm animals and veganism? In many ways, people, animals differently. And what I can say that in the past few years, definitely people start hearing not only about dogs and cats. And the next step was like, four animals, like the four farms, this kind of topic. And then it was animals used in surfaces and uh, then even animals used in testing. But in each step, fewer and fewer people go. Regarding the veganism, I definitely see that, especially now, like, you know, many factors came together and veganism became a topic that is, is talking on the TV national broadcast, yeah. like many times, not once, for just you know one week. And because they are vegan soldiers, so veganism becomes like the topic that people talk and media does coverage of this topic. And not in a way like, 
all veganists or vegans or what they eat or like is it healthy but in the kind of totally different way like we have a lot of vegans and how we can help them and who help vegans right now like taking interviews with vegan soldiers showing these examples of vegans who are defending the country and it just destroys all stereotypes about vegans who cannot do anything. I'm thankful to, to media, actually, because they did a lot of programs last month, last two months, about veganism and even the ethics and our project and our organization. And it's good because more and more people know that veganism exists and people go vegan, different people go vegan, and it's normalizing what I wanted to say, that as, as, many, as many times we hear veganism in a kind of good context, it becomes normalized. Like, oh, vegans, it's, it's okay. Not like, oh, veganism, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that is fascinating and, and really reassuring. And it does sound like the press. I looked at the press on your website um, and I could, you know, I could use Google Translate to look at the written stuff. I couldn't watch the videos, but it was amazing. All of the coverage was amazing. It was very positive. It was very sympathetic. Like the press isn't going to come in and make fun of a soldier who's who's fighting and who just wants to get the food that, that he or she eats. Like, so it looked to me from that small glimpse, I'm glad to hear you reassure me that it's the truth, that there really has been this positive attitude. So let's talk a little bit about the future, because I want to talk about, you know, you're probably very focused on the present because the present is very fraught. But what are your plans for after the war? Do you expect to grow? Do you expect to go back to the things that you were doing? I know you were doing some street action and the lectures, which you actually started to renew, which I'm very glad to hear about. But what other plans do you have for after the war? Last year, we had a project called Ukrainian Vegan Tour, where we visited different cities of Ukraine with a program for two days. It had like movie screening, food sampling, street outreach action, and then uh, the action with VR sets. And, that, and we went to 10 cities last year, and it, it was just amazing experience. We got a lot of great uh, feedback, and this year we wanted to do it again, but we have a different situation. What we talked uh, with the team that when the war will end and when the Ukraine will win, we want to do this tour, but in different way. We want to go to the most uh, destroyed uh, cities and feed the people there and to uh, talk to them while we while we do like distribution of the food we can prepare food for those who rebuild the cities for the volunteers for the workers for the builders we can do kind of for you know talks in this so it's it's my in, in my imagination i think i am not sure how it will be but i view it as like we sit where we build uh, new buildings uh, and we can talk uh, about veganism maybe and just share foods and we will help them to, to recover the city. So it's kind of just our feelings that we have to help Ukraine to recover, but in our way as a vegan organization. So we can bring food and help people and talk with them just because they will ask what is this food or who you are. So we can just kind of share our our message. 
Wow. And also we have a children's book I forgot to mention. So we we created the first vegan book for children on Ukrainian. We haven't had this book in Ukrainian ever. And we created with our team and with the help of an organization called uh, Screen Master Chimpai, we distributed 24,000 of, of this book. And uh, now we are working on the next book. That book is called Pants, Paws, or Hoofs, like Pants, Paws, or Hoofs. And it was like nonfiction where we just share and repeat what's happening in different industries but in very kids' form, like with nothing too traumatizing, just, and it's in poems, like that animals feel pain, they want to be happy, and there are a lot of illustrations of happy animals. And uh, at the end, we, we just uh, have an explanation of what is veganism, and we share different facts about farmed animals, so-called farmed animals, like uh, the facts about cows, the facts about pigs, like some nice facts. Like that, for example, pigs they like music, or they can, or chickens they can hear voices and know who is this exact voice. So some interesting facts. And the next book would be kind of the the, the tale. Oh, fairy tale. The fairy tale, but not yeah. That the animals will have names, and there is a story, and these animals they will would live on farm. And then they decided to to leave farm and to rescue themselves. And then uh, all these different animals they will meet in the uh, sanctuary. So kind of story about this. I, I love both of them. That's a lot of books that you've gotten published. How do you get them to the kids? We just created the book. We were... We we said that we had this book and many people just asked us about this book and received the book. So we had so, like kind of sold out. And when the, this organization approached us, already the war started and we had printed another hundred of books, of, of copies, and we distributed it to the children refugees, to the children in shelters, because families, they left their homes without any books or pencils for the kids so kids get boring in, in bomb shelters and it was a huge problem so we offered the books to the refugee centers and they were so happy they took all of books and, and then the association approached us and they they at first printed four thousand then ten thousand and then another ten thousand and all these books are distributed to the to the refugees again and to different centers and yeah for volunteers to help kids. Yesterday I sent three hundred of books to two refugee centers, one in Odessa and another one closer to the east of Ukraine. And there are a lot of kids and uh, it's not the first time I sent to them because I got a feedback from them that Kids just love uh, this book and can we have like more? So I sent like, another part. This is the, the book project. And what now we want to move forward on is education in schools. So we want to try to talk to Ministry of Education and to make kind of a lesson in schools, but not obligated, but kind of the extra one. Yeah. 
to teach kids about, you know, not like just vegan, but to, to make them think of what's going on with, with the environment, with the food system, and what we do to animals in this circle, right? So kids from the very young age can understand what we do to animals and they can have an idea that does not have to be that way. And when we went to the children camp, we clearly saw this, that kids are very open to the, to the vegans. They just don't know about it. They just, they just don't know, as I was. Like, no one talked to me about veganism or what's going on with animals. I loved animals always, but I was eating them and didn't relate this to actions. And the kids, they love animals and they don't want to harm them. They just have to know what to do with this. This is the big project. And I don't know if now it's the right time to start, but in the nearest future, or maybe after we win, uh, we will do this and try to, to go to schools with the education. That sounds like you, you have amazing plans and you sound very inspired about all of them. You talked a little bit about funding. And from the Supreme Master, and I know you've gotten some grants from other organizations, but tell us how how difficult funding has been or how it is right now. And and I'm sure there are people who would like to help. So tell me how, how people can help. People who will listen to us and decide that we do something uh, they feel is important and they want to support us, we would be very grateful because every grievna, every dollar counts and we try to use this money as much effective as possible. And on our website, everyanimal.org, we have an English version of the website and there is the way to donate. We have the bank account in USD, in Euro, we have PayPal. Uh, so anyway, is uh, appropriate, people can uh, support us and we would really appreciate. We also have a Patreon, which can work for someone. Regarding funding, so at first, when the, uh, the post-peel war started, first, we just, like, as all people, as everyone, we were just stressed out. We didn't know what, what to do, what's going to be next. And of course, even now, being in Kiev, I cannot tell that I'm 100% safe and uh, I will survive. Uh, we are here, we all we live with, with the thought that we can die. And this is something that we just use to it because we just live in the country where it is a war and the rockets fly every day and the bombs, bombings every day. So you just know that you can die. At first, uh, I was, of course, uh, scary, but since it's six months, I just feel that I will do as much as I can until I breathe. And my team will do it even after. So if I will die, I know that they will continue. It's fun. Of course, because Ukraine now is many, many people from all over the world want to support Ukraine. And this is so amazing. Like, I've seen so many people from many countries, many cities just writing to me, our organization, and wanted to offer some support. Even those who didn't have money, they said, I don't have money, but I can put some posters somewhere. And it is amazing how people from all over the world want to help Ukrainians. And 
I can say not only from my side or my organization, from every Ukrainian, like we all are so grateful. Everybody who help us these days and don't forget about us and speak about us and donate and support and share our stories. And that's why I think we got a lot of support from foundations, from organizations. We were able to cover the cost for this project we had for these six months. And we spent a lot of money for the vegan kitchen. Like every month, it's about $5,000. We spend just for food and parcels. Yeah, so it's a lot of money. So we got covered for this time, but the fundings, they're never unlimited. <laughs> they always have limits. So yeah, we always need them. And especially when you don't know what's going to happen next, it's very hard to predict if we will have the support to say, because before the post-scale war, we had a lot of support from Ukrainians. Like many people, you know, they had kind of subscription for support. And now it's almost gone to zero because all Ukrainians, they uh, support uh, armed forces of Ukraine and understandable. So many people just spend all their money to support the army as many of us do as well from our own money. So yeah, Ukrainians, uh, they don't now support so so much organizations like ours. So we mostly rely on foreign support. I mean, you're doing such heroic work. And I'll tell you the truth, $5,000 a month, yeah, it's a lot of money, but you are doing an enormous amount with that $5,000 a month to feed so many people in in such fraught circumstances. So it sounds like you're using the money extremely well. I certainly encourage people to check out your website, everyanimal.org. Is that right? That's how people would reach it here? Yes. Yeah. English version would be everyanimal.org slash en. Okay. Thank you so much, Tamara, for taking time out of your crazy, crazy life to talk to us. It's really been a privilege. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you and sharing our story. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Dr. Ron Weiss. I'm a medical doctor, farmer, and the founder of a nonprofit, Ethos Farm Project. Ethos's mission is to address the interconnected nature of how agriculture impacts human and planetary health and our relationship with animals. We grow regenerative organic food to feed our community, restore the land, and raise a new generation of farmers, doctors, and nurses. Please join me on September 24th and 25th at our beautiful 342-acre National Historic Landmark Farm in Long Valley, New Jersey. You'll be inspired by world-renowned speakers, amazing activities, and delicious plant-based food right here on the farm. Go to www.ethosfarmproject.org or call 631-599-6138. Thank you. See you all down on the farm. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is a doozy. It's from Meeting Place and it's by all of our favorites, I'm sure. That's Rick Berman from the Center for Consumer Freedom. And the title of this particular column is What the Activists Are Up To. And I, I like what he has to say about us. In my years of opposing their campaigns, 
I've learned their mentality is that they haven't lost. It's only that they haven't won yet. I really like that. Thank you, Rick. Uh, and he's talking about Prop 12 and the case before the Supreme Court, which, you know, as we all know, is a little dire. And as he puts it, this fall, the Supreme Court will consider the constitutionality of California Proposition 12. The activists have focused on using large markets like California to ban the sale of conventionally produced animal protein. A few comments here. Conventionally produced, is that what we're calling factory farms now? Conventional agriculture? I thought conventional meant not, you know, like not organic. So, you know, they will consider allegedly the constitutionality. I, I, I no longer believe the Supreme Court really thinks about constitutionality. They just think about what they want. Uh, how they want it to come out, which is not really a court, but that's the topic for another day. And he's talking about how animal activists, their new tack, uh, and again, I like this, They, though I don't think it's particularly new, they now seek to align more closely with the environmental movement, and herein lies a long-term threat to agriculture. I love that he thinks it's a long-term threat, and I think we've always tried to align more closely with the environmental movement. The environmental movement has, until recently, not been very friendly about aligning with the animal rights movement. But, you know, as we all know, there's the big problem, uh, and that's climate. This is how he did. <laughs> He's such an idiot, I swear. This is how he, he deals with the new climate bill. Well, the new bill, which covers things, a lot of things, including climate. Congress just rammed through. What does that mean, rammed through? <laughs> <laughs> who were they ramming it against? They they voted on it and it passed. They rammed through a climate bill to help the environmental lobby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what Congress really is wants to do. They don't care about saving the world. They just are so like they love the environmental lobby so much that they just want to do this to help them. Build the Inflation Reduction Act. The legislation gives massive subsidies for electric vehicles and checks other boxes on the environmental lobby's wish list. That's how much power the environmental lobby has. You know, not mentioning that the reason that the environmental lobby might have some power at the moment is because the world is burning. Uh, so he's pretty upset. And he's upset about what's happening in Europe, specifically in the Netherlands. Farmers are up in arms. Farmers, of course, he means animal agribusiness, are up in arms over the government's new climate policies. And apparently, the Dutch, the Dutch government is seeking a 30% reduction in livestock in the country, which, you know, hooray for the Netherlands. This is so ridiculous, he said, that apparently the country decided to have its greenhouse gas emissions, never mind that Holland is a tiny country compared to top polluter China. Like, what is his point here? That the rest of us should all just give up? Like, because there's somebody worse. I, like, I, I don't even really understand what he's getting at. I don't know he, whether he does either. All right. He goes on to say, there is an attitude in the environmental movement that change must be forced upon others. Damn the consequences. What? <laughs> I can't. I can't even go into it. In their minds, they've been hearing the world could end due to climate change. Never mind that bogus predictions have been made for 50 years in this field. Like, what? Because it's been predict, there have been some people who were ahead of the game and predicting it for fifty years, and it has the world hasn't ended yet, even though completely dire things have started to happen. That means that they're wrong. Like what? This is my favorite line. It hasn't come yet. You'll be surprised to hear this is my favorite one. So what? He's talking about the attitude of the environmental movement. So what if they have to put a few farmers out of work if it means they save Mother Earth? 
Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> I, I think saving Mother Earth is kind of worth putting a few farmers out of work. Of course, that's not what we have to do, but I digress. All right. The new surface Axios notes one reason the environmental lobby is winning where they failed in the past. Quote, a large, diverse and determined social movement has formed around global climate action, unquote. Well, yeah, because the world is ending and he thinks that animal activists are are following this trend. They're targeting the next generation, just as climate activists have done. They're building their political future. Well, yeah. Remember, they just haven't won yet. I like it. All of a sudden, I like it again. This is how he closes. Today, the threat from animal activism may feel low, especially if the Supreme Court overturns Prop 12. But make no mistake, we're in a never-ending war with the activists. If we win on one front, they'll simply open a new one. They're playing the long game. Well, Rick, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we're doing. Though I sure hope that the case doesn't lose in the Supreme Court, but you know, it could happen. All right, two more stories. They're both from Watt Poultry. Avian flu makes things tough, even for hikers and bikers. Right, this is this this story is just disgusting. It's by one Roy Graber, and what he's talking about is that. Well, he's talking about in New Jersey, but I don't think it's just um, happening in New Jersey. But in New Jersey, it closed a trail. That's why he's talking about hikers, that there were so many dead vultures. He starts off with a joke, of course. One time when we happened upon a vulture eating some roadkill, I asked if vultures ate other vultures who have passed away or just one say to the other, hey, that's my Uncle Merle. You can't eat him. Ha, ha, ha. But really, this is a terrible situation. Of course, that's why they're making fun of it, because they don't care. That the, apparently vultures are extremely sensitive to highly pathogenic avian influenza, which the poultry industry, of which he is part of, is causing. It, it you know, is spreading to wild birds, um, and and they're falling victim. In New Jersey, so many have died that they've had to they've had to close this trail because it's full of dead vultures. This is a horrible, horrible situation, and it's starting to to affect recreation. Like not a word, of course, about the birds, neither the chickens nor the vultures. These birds have been left to decompose on site due to rough terrain causing accessibility issues and a lack of personnel in the state certified to handle infected birds. Improper handling can lead to further spread of illness. That's a quote from a New Jersey agency. So, of course, of course, government is left to clean up this disastrous mess. Not like the industry is going to do it. And I closes with, I know this must be frustrating to those who frequently use the trail, but please remain patient and use this as an opportunity to find other areas where you can enjoy nature. Well, fuck you, Roy. Fuck you. <laughs> like, what choice do we have other than to remain patient? Does he think they're going to, like, come and storm uh, the, the factory farms? I wish they would. All right. Our final story, also from Watt Poultry. The new organic rule could be expensive for egg producers. It's kind of good news, and I always like to talk about when they're upset about good news. If approved, the proposed organic standards, you know, and of course, obviously, this is being put in there so people can lobby against them being approved, might cause more in financial burdens for smaller egg producers. They, they also might cause more financial burdens for larger egg producers, but they never talk about that. They always act like it's only like tiny little farms that are going to be affected. And this story is relevant to this to this horrible situation that has existed in organic rules for poultry. Specifically, I think this is for egg-laying hens. 
And, and, you know, organic rules are supposed to require that animals go outside. And for poultry, they've always been interpreted in a way that people can comply with them by allowing their chickens to live on porches. It's like a factory farm, only they replace the walls with screen and pretend that that means that their chickens are going outside. And the government has always gone along with this and organic standards bears, which, you know, vary from state to state, but they've always gone along with this. All right. So this starts off the U.S. Department of Agriculture proposed to amend the organic livestock and poultry standards rule with new requirements to enforce consistent standards for organic poultry and livestock. Additionally, the amendments will clarify existing requirements covering livestock care and production practices, such as what qualifies as an outdoor area. And under the current organic rules, as I said, they say outdoor access practices for organic layers vary depending on the operation. Well, you know, the rules don't vary. The rules are very, very lax. And maybe there are some producers that actually allow their their hens to go outside. But what is allowed by the rules are porches that layers can access from inside the poultry house. Porches. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? Both scenarios are approved as outdoor access and both producers can label their eggs as organic. However, the proposed rule they go on to say would make porches a thing of the past. Oh, we're going to miss porches. So they they feel that these organic producers uh, will need to build larger and more expensive outdoor areas within a certain grace period. They'll have time to do this if they want to stay in the market. Well, yeah, the market, like the rules are that they're supposed to allow the hens to go outside, like their own porches, crowded, hideous, factory farm porches. Uh, organic egg producers would need to invest considerable amounts of money to meet the standards. Well, yeah, it costs money. To, it costs money to raise animals. It costs more money to raise them uh, if, there, if there are any standards. Like, that's the point. So stop stop eating eggs. That's the answer I, I've got. If you don't like it, just quit. Get out of business, folks. Get out of business. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 